The Arizona Criminal Justice Commission's podcast, AZ to DC, brings you the latest criminal justice issues happening in Washington, DC that directly impact Arizona. On AZ to DC, we have in-depth discussions with politicians, researchers, nonprofits, and criminal justice experts who work on the national scene on criminal justice policy. And I have with me today, Heather Bonet, the program manager of our Victim Services Program. And today, Heather, we have a very special guest that we're excited to talk to. Yes, thanks, Tony. Today on AZ to DC, we're talking with Dan Eddy, who's the executive director of the National Association of Crime Victim Compensation Boards. Dan has been the executive director since 1988, and before that, he served as the Crime Victims Project Director for the National Association of Attorneys General. He's a graduate at Harvard College and the University of Maryland School of Law. So welcome, Dan, and thanks for being with us today. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, Heather and Tony. I really appreciate this opportunity. And, and Dan, just so you know, when I was in the Air Force, I was stationed overseas in Okinawa and uh, started taking college classes, and they were through the University of Maryland. So we oh. do have that connection. I do have a transcript with some classes that I did pass. Uh, I don't know uh, very well. I can't remember back that far. But I did briefly attend the University of Maryland. Well, uh, Tony, I'm a Maryland uh, born and bred. So I have and several of my siblings went there and it is one of the finest institutions in America. I will I will take your word for it. Um, <laughs> the yeah, there you go. <laughs> if we could start off, could you just give a, a, for the folks listening a, a summary version that 30,000 foot perspective above the earth of what the National Association does for its member states and, and territories? Sure. The, the National Association of Crime Victim Compensation Boards is a very long term, but it really means this. It's a group of all the 50 state compensation programs, victim compensation programs. We've been around since 1977 when compensation programs uh, had reached a point where there were more than 20, 25 states that had these programs. And our, our, our mission as an association is really pretty simple. We try to keep these programs connected. Uh, we offer them a means to exchange ideas and information. You know, we believe that the expertise when it comes to state crime victim compensation is with folks like Heather and you and the commission and all those in the counties that do this work in the county attorney offices. You know, I should note, by the way, that uh, Arizona, along with Colorado, are the two states where the compensation programs and the boards are independently or semi-independently located in the uh, prosecutor's offices. In the other states, it's in a central state agency of various types. There could be an attorney general's office, there could be a Department of Criminal Justice Planning, there could be other things, um, even workers' compensation in a couple of states. In any event, to sum up, uh, what we do is we keep them connected so they can talk to each other about the challenges they face and the solutions that they're finding. And I'm sure we'll get into some of those issues and challenges and sure. solutions as we go through this podcast. Sure. Leave it leave it up to Arizona and Colorado to uh, be different and distinguish ourselves from everyone else. Well, it may, be, it may be different in a better way. It may be very well be that this should have been the model. It was not the model <laughs> we, that was We followed. think so. We think so, yeah, Dan. Sure. Arizona likes to do things different, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that can be good. And, you know, I appreciate the role that the association plays 
for us as individual states and us as comp administrators or managers, I can tell you, I came from uh, the Arizona Joint Legislative Budget Committee over to the Criminal Justice Commission to manage the victim services program. I had no knowledge or experience in victims or victim issues. And I remember coming to the Criminal Justice Commission to manage the victim services program and had this as a centerpiece, the compensation program. And I, I had that moment where you sit behind the desk and you think, oh, my, what have I got myself into? This is overwhelming, like what we have to do here in this compensation program. And not too long after that was the national conference. I think it was in Charleston, South Carolina. It's the first time I met you. You were so you you sought me out. Uh, you were so welcoming, and you introduced me to a lot of other people that had been doing this work for a lot of years and had a lot of experience. And what I remember is I came back from that conference with a much different perspective, where I felt confidence in at least having a pathway forward. Um, so the, the value, and I don't know, Heather, your perspective, but the value of that, your national organization is, is extremely important to member organizations. Well, that, that's really nice to hear, Tony. I mean, I, I think when I think about, uh, you know, what's, what's, what I really enjoy about being the executive director of this organization, which is really uh, uh, simply trying to facilitate these exchanges between folks that are newer to their jobs and folks that have been there and may or may not have uh, faced that issue or challenge. And at least you can feel comfortable knowing that, hey, I don't face this alone. I've got people I can call on. And, you know, Tony, you, you still look really, really young. But, <laughs> you, know, you go back to a time before the Internet when you were working directly in the compensation program as Heather is today. And, um, you know, I could I, this is not really bragging. I mean, I didn't have email, uh, emails to communicate with people way, way back when, if the younger people listening to this can, can believe that. But I knew everybody's phone number and I knew everybody's face. I'd met, met nearly everybody and over a, year, over a few years, everybody. And I, I feel like my job is to get to understand what might be the issues facing Arizona. Not in any great depth and mostly as you raise them with me, but, um, and then try to provide perspectives about um, the, the how others may or may not have faced these issues and sometimes they're new and we have to survey it's another thing we do we try to gather new information as new issues emerge you know one other thing I should I should mention since I noted your podcast and I thought it was very catchy and good uh, AZ to DC you know we do represent programs with the federal government and specifically the Office for Victims of Crime and the US Department of Justice that handles the VOCA grants to states on both assistance and compensation. So that's another thing we've tried to do, and I'm sure that the conferences that you went to, we were connecting people with OVC officials. Absolutely. As well. and we continue to do that. So what's your favorite part of being the executive director of the association? Well, I, I think, Tony, you touched on it um, in your remarks. The, you know, seeing someone that's new and knowing that I personally am not going to be the guy that will be able to answer, I mean, just answer every question, uh, every challenge you might face, a new person might face. But what I do is I listen and learn. I, that's the base of my knowledge and any expertise I may have 
just from listening to people like Heather, who are dealing with things, and Heather already in just a few, a few years, I guess, it, it hasn't been long, already has advanced at a stage where she's advising other people, because mm -hmm. it doesn't take long once you're in this and feel comfortable and are getting some help that I hope we could provide to really become immersed in the issues. And I, I think one of the things, so that's, I would say, seeing people come into this field and work at it and try to learn and then being able to facilitate that exchange of ideas and, and information for, and so that's kind of where I am. I mean, I, I don't run a compensation program. I'm not in the federal government. All I can do is try to answer the questions as they come up and share information and ideas. So we do that through national conferences. We've held right. regional conferences over the years. We have a very robust email exchange, if not every day, a couple of times a week. Um, and uh, that's the way we try to keep people connected because you know, I, I can know 50 people like Heather and like you, you know, there's a little bit of an expansion in some states, pretty easily, 50 people, there's not too many to keep in your head and to know who they are and what they're facing. You don't forget 50 people. And I used to brag to myself, a few other people, that I knew by heart nearly everybody's phone number. I probably <laughs> could still remember 602 something. Right. <laughs> to reach Tony. But. So that, that's what I enjoy. And maybe when we have a success at the federal level, it doesn't come off up often that we have legislation before Congress that affects crime victim compensation. But we did just this past year, the money in the Victims of Crime Act Crime Victims Fund has been drying up as a result of some changes in prosecutions at the federal level. They're not prosecuting as many criminal corporate offenders. Mm -hmm. They're searching for ways to make settlements and gain a, a, a good deal of money that they used to get in fines, but by the technicalities of way that the way that works, fines at the federal level go into the Crime Victims Fund set up by the Victims of Crime Act of 1984. Whereas settlement money, if you don't, if you essentially plead out and you're not convicted, then you might settle for the same amount, and it could be a billion dollars. Right. But that money was going into the U.S. Treasury rather than if the person was convicted and that was a fine that went into the Crime Victims Fund. So we addressed that in the last year, working with our allies uh, in other organ national organizations and, of course, with Congress. So that was a big victory, and there have been a few other We also increased the amount of grant money that goes to compensation programs. So, Tony, when you were directly uh, involved and in charge of the comp program. You were probably getting 40% grants mm -hmm. based on your state payout, and now it's gone up to 75% yeah. Yeah. because it's state big. revenues have gone sure. down as well. So, well, I can so say as a, at the federal level. Well, I can say as a new, a fairly new administrator, only being, being here a couple of years in this position, that I am grateful for the work that you do, Dan, as well as the association, and it is a great resource for compensation programs and administrators. So great work. Thanks, Heather. What's the what's the most challenging thing that you face in your role as the executive director? Well, I, I'm sure you've seen this in Arizona and at the county level. I'm sure that the, the county administrators, coordinators of these programs. You know, victim compensation is a difficult task. It's a really important one for crime victims, but these are programs that essentially have to try to provide financial help to people who are facing a traumatic uh, emergency. I mean, something that's just happened out of the blue. It's not like a disease that progresses or something like that. 
it's it's something that happens and you've got to you're suddenly facing issues and trauma that you weren't before and i think you know we may have challenges working with programs but simply trying to make sure we get all the information out to busy people like yourselves but i think that the, the main challenges i see it sometimes anyway is trying to correct some perceptions of crime victim compensation no they they, they can't do everything right away and it is a process and it takes different players in the system to help the comp programs do their work and i think there's some natural uh uh, impatience and and lack of understanding. So I, I spend a good deal of time on occasion, not regularly, but regularly enough, with media, with national advocacy groups that I think um, have. Uh, there are certain myths and misconceptions about compensation, and I, I have to try to correct those. I think also as issues kind of come to the national forefront as they go from state to state usually um, you know some of the challenges to what was set up in compensation programs like the Arizona law which I think dates back to the mid mid 1980s you know some of the fundamental rules that were in place then may or may not work today or may maybe may need to be adjusted made more flexible as we know more about victimization and the needs and so kind of helping states understand that when they're facing um, you know, rather uh, aggressive efforts at the state level, in some states anyway, to try to change these fundamental rules. Here's one. I mean, there are some folks that are very actively opposing fees and fines and assessments to fund crime victim compensation programs. One yeah. of the brilliant things when compensation programs were developed in the United States was that the effort was to make the criminals pay for these, not by fining them $10,000, but by making everybody pay a small amount, $25, $50, $100, whatever it might be, or even just a couple of bucks on a speeding ticket. And those funding mechanisms that have worked really, really well at the state level and also at the federal level, that's where the money comes for the federal crime victims fund. It's all criminal fines and now settlements in when they settle cases. Um, if that's going to go by the wayside, People are going to say uh, offenders, and I, and I do personally get the social goals, the social, the societal problems that come when someone is overburdened with uh, fines and fees and they try to build a new life. But you got to figure out some way to pay for these programs. You got to help the victims. And if, if, if they're going to go after these fines and fees, as they are in some states, then um, you got to find. So I, I think those are the challenges in short. It's, uh, it's kind of dealing with sort of these national scope efforts that may or may not fully understand the difficulties comp programs have. Dan, and I think you make a good point that there's always, uh, or they're not always, but there's a large focus kind of on issues or challenges um, that compensation programs may face or that they're dealing with daily. But what would you think that compensation programs do well for victims? Like what's something that we do well? Well, I, I do, you know, every case is different. And I think I want to acknowledge if we're talking nationally, Every state is in a different situation. They're all doing the same compensation work with virtually the same law. But some have lots of money to do it or sufficient funds, and some are at the other end of the spectrum. It's like a bell curve and many in the middle at some point. And it has to do with staffs, too. You know, do you have enough staffing to process these claims efficiently? So, Heather, it's a difficult question. I would say optimally, 
programs are getting the money. They are offering this help. They are offering hope. This is a real lifeline. It's not a lifelong insurance, but lifelong insurance program. And it's, it's really not like a, you know, you don't sign into this as like a, a welfare program that's likely to go on for years and years. This is a safety net where the initial needs and the, the recovery so that someone can go back to functioning at least better than they were in the immediate aftermath, uh, get gain some semblance of their life back. I think compensation programs do a reasonably good job on that based on data. I mean, most programs are able to pay claims within a relatively short amount of time. It may take 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, more, more difficult cases, longer. But I think people have to remember that this is like, in a sense, a kind of insurance program, a safety net, where nobody signed up in advance. You have no idea who this person is. We expect our medical insurance companies to pay bills quickly because I'm paying for it, or my employer is. They know who I am, they ought to get this thing done, and I don't want to be hassled with the bill. Well, insurance, I mean, climate and compensation programs, they never heard of somebody. All they know is that they have a claim and a police report that they have to analyze and figure it out and do, deal with these eligibility rules. So um, I think comp programs do that relatively well. They've also added new benefits over the years. You know, not long ago, not many states offered relocation benefits, and still not everybody's able to do that. It's a big chunk of money to do that. But I think they've added benefits over the years. They're making their rules more flexible to try to um, allow more victims to apply. And so um, I, I guess it's the, for a crime victim who learns about crime victim compensation, I think it's that hope. Oh. This is not going to be my entire, not a burden, not entirely on me. You know, we talk about the physical injury the victims face and the emotional injury that comes along with it. Um, there's a financial injury that can uh, make those other things worse. If somebody was worried about money, they're not going to heal emotionally and even physically as well as they could if knowing that someone's got their back on the financial end. Again, not, not huge amounts and not forever but to get you through that recovery part of the process. You kind of touched on how programs are evolving and changing rules, things like that. Um, are there programs that you would consider to be innovative or progressive, um, you know, as we're making rule changes and reviewing some of those national policies? Yeah, uh, I think um, one of the issues that states are dealing with and advocates are pressing for is more flexibility with regard to reporting and co cooperation. There in every state compensation law, when they were written, starting 50, 40, and then 30 years ago, um, you know, actually 40 years ago was about when the last programs were, were developed. Reporting and cooperation with police was a fundamental rule. And so there are some states that have recognized that at least certain victimizations, and I'll give you a, a concrete example in, in a couple, three states. Sexual assault and domestic violence victims may face issues that maybe other crime victims don't face, at least in not in the same amount or, or severity. And that is, do you want to go in through with uh, uh, even reporting to police, but if you did make that report, do you want to fully cooperate in a prosecution down the line? Um, that's a very difficult choice for many victims to face, and I think particularly sexual assault and DV, and you could add human trafficking. So California, 
adopted a law. It's been maybe three years now, two to three years. Um, Connecticut had done it a few years before that, uh, and Oregon has done it as well, that those victimization types would not be subjected to the same full tests of reporting and cooperation. You need something. You need, it could be a, um, a forensic exam submitting to that for a sexual assault victim, and maybe not anything more than that. Or maybe mental health counseling notes, maybe medical reports. A, a number of things could, if not substitute, at least show that a police, what a police report would show, which is that this is a victim of a crime that's been investigated, and here's the proof, you have no real question, substantial question, that this is a person that was a victim of crime and has these needs, and the program should meet them rather than putting up some uh, some rule that might, most people would say, well, that's really not fair to the victim. She or he has a good reason not to testify in court, and that shouldn't be what holds this thing up. I think it's a balance. Anyway, you asked about where uh, some of the more uh, Progressive, for want of a better word, programs, what, what they've done, I, I would say that. Um, I, we don't see a lot of efforts to, uh, I, oh, one other thing I should mention uh, is technology. Uh, this is a struggle for comp programs. You know, you work with a medical insurance company, they got the best technology available because they got millions, billions of dollars to buy the best stuff. Well, state programs and, you know, don't have the same access to those resources. So I would say some of the programs that have been able to find those resources and make sure their technology is not holding them back in terms of getting that claim through the system. And adding portals, ways, ways that people can apply online, as now you kind of expect to do with everything in this internet world, uh, I'd say that would be something that some programs are doing that not all programs have had the resources to do. That's a, that's a great example, too, the uh, online application. And as I think about that issue and think about the connectivity that the association provides for state programs to talk with each other, I remember well before we, we had a, uh, a online application that we, that we have now, uh, at a workshop, at a conference, I think it might have been Pennsylvania that had an online application that they did a demonstration for at the workshop. And I remember sitting in there thinking, I want to do that. I want to try and do that and came back. And, and that really started the ball rolling for us to, to eventually have the uh, online application that we have. So great point about the, the progressiveness yeah. and the innovation, but also, you know, the ability to share that with other states um, yeah. and, and foster changes in those state programs. And of course, we're not doing anything that, that any other association would be doing with its membership, whether it's a, a business a community or a government, uh, you know, whatever. And I'm sure the lottery officials in various states are getting together and talking about how they can improve that. So that, that's what we do. And, and that, you know, that's one of the areas where I think we've, we've been helpful. I, I get calls on a fairly regular basis, you know, what's out there? What are other states using? And we've been able to um, help states figure out what their solutions for technology might be. Kind of switching gears a little bit, Dan, every state has, we, you know, victim compensation program, but then also uh, victim assistance programs. And both programs receive 
um, you know, federal VOCA funding. Um, can you kind of explain the importance of victim compensation programs in states versus victim assistance programs, um, and maybe how victim compensation programs are different? Yeah, um, obviously they have the, the different types of programs, and, and victim assistance, of course, uh, culminates these grants that come from the federal government and, and perhaps also in some states from from state governments. But there's a there's a lot of federal money through the Victims of Crime Act, VOCA assistance subgrants that goes to state administrators like yourself, like the commission, and then goes out to the subgrants. So that's where the the victims meet the people. And if if uh, so VOCA assistance has a different mission. It's to connect with people who need services. It could be in police departments or prosecutor offices or domestic violence shelters or specialized programs for child abuse or sexual assault. And, you know, it, it, it's not a, a matter of compensation versus assistance, just to quibble slightly with that. It's, it's compensation and assistance programs. In the ideal world, they are partners. And for example, the VOCA assistance administrators at the state level would be getting information out to their subgrantees and encouraging them and maybe even enforcing some way that they must pay attention to compensation uh, because it's one of the rules about VOCA assistance subgrants that you have to provide information and assistance about victim comp. So, uh, so I think that it's a, um, a symbiotic relationship where the comp programs utterly depend on assistance programs at the local level uh, to bring the victims to them. I think this is changing a little bit. That was much more true maybe in the pre-internet era when folks like Tony and, and, and would have to go around and actually talk to people and, and, and didn't have the internet and didn't have the websites that now provide all the information. In a sense, the training of victim assistance subgrantees and the people that work has become a lot easier. Uh, hey, go on the website. Look at, you can learn in three minutes what this program's essence is. And the essence is all you need to impart to people who need information at the time that they need it. So I think this symbiotic relationship, assistance programs help bring people to comp programs. And what do comp programs offer in, in, in return? Well, someone who's uh, perhaps an advocate at the local level is trying to help get their life in order, get this victim's life in order and back on track, oh, well, you got a medical bill and that's really your concern right now. Well, hey, I'm gonna help you fill out an application and that will be paid. That will, you'll get that paid. It may take a little bit, but you know, maybe the program also can intercede and get with the hospital and say, hey, this is coming down the line. We just have to process to pay for it. And similar to, to the relationship between um, victim assistance and victim comp programs. We have a relationship at the state level with the federal government through um, the, the compensation program. And certainly when, when I think about the program in Arizona, we are, we are heavily influenced by the federal government because we get um, a, a grant, and you mentioned the 75% reimbursement. So we get a, a, a federal grant through, through VOCA, we have a federal law that governs the, governs the comp program and sets certain parameters. Um, we have grant guidelines that we have to meet, too, when we get that 75% reimbursement. Um, we get reviews by um, program reviews by 
OVC or the IG that come down and look at what we do and weigh in on what we do. So there is, a, there is an influence on the part of the federal government. What, but what I find interesting about comp programs is they are state by state. They are a little bit different, which really speaks to a, a level of autonomy that they have. Could you speak to that relationship between the state programs and the quest to have this autonomy and the impact that the federal government has on those programs or the influence that the federal government has on those programs? Sure, Tony. I think it's an important thing to, to talk about, and I'd be happy to explain it. I've been dealing with these, this kind of uh, question uh, for you know, 30 years that I've been working with this national organization. This is one way where compensation is different than VOCA assistance. Congress set up a grant program for compensation programs at a time when close to 40 of those states had already created compensation programs fully funded and governed by state law. And so Congress's goal in setting up a federally funded grant program, which didn't start granting money until 1986, which was 21 years after California was the first comp program in the country, and there were quite a few. There were 20 that came on in between 65 and 75, and then Arizona was in the, the second batch that sort of completed the 40 states, because the legislators love this. They, they get, it, get the criminals to pay. You don't have to use tax dollars to pay for this thing. So Congress recognized that we should leave the state programs alone. Let's set some minimal conditions that all the states met anyway. Um, you have to pay for that. So there's there's four or five, there's just literally four or five things that comp programs have to do to qualify for a federal compensation grant, and they all do that. Um, and, and I want to be clear about the money, too. Yes, states get a 75% of state payout grant. Now, what does that mean? Some people might just on the first gloss of that say, oh, well, the federal government is paying for 75% of the cost of running a compensation program in Arizona or any other state. That's not the case. And I'm gonna use round numbers real quickly. I don't wanna get into heavy math here and it's not heavy math. But say a state, and this is a little bit more than what um, Arizona is paying out. It's a smaller state than some of the larger states. But say you're paying out $17 million in benefits. And actually I should say 17.5 million in benefits, because that, that'll round it off for me. 17.5 million in benefits to victims every year. Okay, so that means Arizona, if it was paying that, would have to pay $10 million of its own state money, and then tell Congress, I mean, tell, tell OVC, who's implementing Congress's uh, law on this, tell OVC, we spent $10 million of that 17.5 million, 10 came from us, and then we had a grant from you of 7.5 million, 75% of what we paid out. That's where the 17.5 million comes. It's always been a, a, a majority state-funded program. And then the federal government does not pay for administrative operating costs. And for many states, that's 25 to 40% of the total cost of their program. So you add all that up, even if you only looked at benefits, the state paid 10 million and the federal government puts in 7.5, the state is covering 57% of the benefits, and then you add in the substantial administrative costs. The federal government's putting in about 25 to 
of what it costs to operate these programs. And then they've left, as I say, Congress, when it set this up in 1984, left the control and the governance. It didn't want to set up a separate federal program. It said, you take our money, run your program. Here's more to make sure you can do what you want. We have a couple of stipulations, cover federal victims, like in a national park or on Indian lands, as if they were under state jurisdiction, cover any American who comes into your state from another state, you pay that state. If everybody agrees to that, then we have reciprocity. There's a few, few minor, you know, relatively minor sort of rules to set the thing in motion. And again, to ensure that states have the money to do what they want to do. Uh, but, you know, I, I know that the federal government always, and whatever we do, plays a, a, a serious role. But this is one of those things like, you know, like education, school boards, whatever, that is essentially left at the state level. Federal government cannot come in and tell your county programs how to decide a case. It's, they just have no authority to do that. Um, their role is to provide the grant money, get it out as easily, as quickly and efficiently as possible. Now that's on the comp side of this equation. On the VOCA assistance side, it's very, very different. It's entirely federally funded. It entirely operates under state law and rule, I mean, on federal. It's entirely federally funded. It's entirely operated under federal law and rules. So naturally enough, the federal government, Office for Victims of Crime, sets all the rules. It does not do that on the comp side. It is very helpful. I want to make clear that money is crucial. It just doesn't, it's not the whole right. show. The whole show is at the state level. Right. right. You, you know, and you, you yeah. mentioned the contribution of states uh, funding the, the comp program and, and, and that being, uh, you know, really a, a centerpiece for compensation programs. And Arizona, like some other states, has experienced a, a declining revenue for a number of years and certainly has brought us to a place where we have some long-term concerns about how we're going to establish the financial health of, of the compensation program and bringing in this state money that, that we need to make the expenditure to get the 75%. What would you say to the, the perspective that comp programs, you know, they're really just another form of state welfare programs? Well, it's an interesting question, Tony. Um, here's the way I think I would respond. These are safety nets. I think we tend to think of welfare programs as uh, some more long-term help. I um, mean, is Social Security disability? It may be that you contribute to that, but many programs, uh, I suppose, and crime victim comp, I'll just speak to that. It's a, uh, a temporary, short-term, effort to help someone who has been suddenly faced with these traumatic uh, circumstances and then the financial problems afterward. So it's a short-term thing. It is a, if it's a welfare program, it certainly cuts across uh, socioeconomic and demographic boundaries. Crime can happen to anybody. Mm. It happens in the richest suburbs. People are killed. Uh, domestic violence, someone, you know, it happens in the richest homes, it happens in the poorest neighborhoods. And um, so I don't think we need to think of this as just a handout. It's, it's a hand up. Uh, I know that's sort of a hackneyed phrase, but, uh, and th this is not, I, I want to be clear too, it's not as if, you know, the police, the, the, the state and federal authorities, you know, one of the main things government does is protect its citizens. Yeah. That's why we have police forces. 
and we have the FBI and whatever. Um, but nobody in the federal or state governments is saying we can protect you from all crime. And so this is not a, like, a, oh, we failed you and now we owe you. This is, okay, we're going to have a certain amount of crime and uh, we need to recognize that if society is going to function well, we can't have people who have vic been victimized and are not able to work in whatever job they have and are burdened by uh, financial bills that they didn't expect and they didn't cause, then we need to see what we can do to help. Now, you talked about the funding problems, uh, Tony. You know, again, one of the key things was we don't have to burden the taxpayers with this. We can burden the criminals. Small amounts on a lot of different convictions, and we're going to get the money to fund these things. Now, that, that model, that way of funding these programs, has gone a little bit south or, or, or by, you know, it's not working as well as it did. I think there are a few factors. There is less crime. For crime victims, that means that's meaningless. But statistically, uh, most states are way, way down from what are the highs in the 90s. So it may be that there's a smaller base of criminals. At the same time, by the way, if you looked at inflation on medical bills and what counselors are charging and what funeral homes are charging, Comp programs may, may be serving a, a, a smaller number of victims, but probably not because folk assistance came in and more outreach and more people are finding out and coming in. Um, these are complicated issues to really figure out on a mathematical or statistical mm -hmm. um, level. But uh, what, we, what we know is that there are a number of states where maybe criminal justice reforms, legalization of marijuana, there's lesser, you know, there's a smaller base of people paying small amounts in because criminal justice, criminal justice reform has changed that and maybe judges aren't enforcing things and whatever. So um, I, I think that, that, those, that when it comes to the to a state having to put in appropriations money, you know, maybe then that's when, when state decision makers and legislatures and governor's offices have to make choices. Right. Do we prioritize? I was reading an article a little while ago, and and it was about um, the differences between the crime victim compensation program and restitution. And the author of that article had characterized the compensation program in an interesting way that I kind of liked that it that really is different than the welfare perspective. And he called compensation programs, a social insurance program. And the, the idea was that no citizen should be forced to bear the cost alone of crime uh, because crime is a result of, of a lot of things that happen or don't happen in, in our society. Everybody bears this cost and, and the compensation is this form of social insurance. So I, I like that perspective. Um, and and certainly uh, like what you're you're saying, Dan, about um, me, about how to approach let that. Add, let me just add to that, Tony. I, I like that way too. I think that's a that's a, a nice way to, to think about it. And a beautiful phrase. You know, we, we as a nation at this moment in time are really focused on the state of mass violence. And this is not to get into any of the issues surrounding that. But what we who would say? that the state of Arizona should not have stepped in to help the victims who were there when 
Ms. Giffords, your your member of Congress, was was shot, right? Or that somebody in the federal government, the federal government and the state government, shouldn't provide resources so that the victims in Buffalo and the victims in Texas. We all would agree, I think, that yeah, let's let's put some money into that so these folks don't have to, as you say, bear this burden alone. This is a, should be a social cause because we're all enduring this as a society, but they more than others, they more directly. Sure. So I okay. think if you take that, if that's the way people feel, then the victim of some individual guy or, or whomever, the person who shoots somebody on the street or who's a drunk driver runs down the daughter of somebody as she comes home from school, it's an individual thing. If you can say we think we should put the resources into helping the folks in Buffalo and Evaldi, then I don't know what the distinction would be uh, for that poor father dealing with uh, his daughter who's just gotten run over. Yeah, good point. You guys recently, you're talking about funding, and that's a significant challenge that you know programs, state programs are facing, and, and that's something that we face here in Arizona and that I've been um, you know, working on since I became the administrator, you know, kind of the revenue decline, the funding available you know, to assist victims um, you know, in their time of need and to assist with those medical bills, the mental health bills, and things like that. So at a local level, that's you know, some of the challenges that I've been facing. But Dan, what would you say were, are some of the significant challenges that maybe compensation face Compensation programs face from a national perspective. Sure, and and you know, it, compensation is, uh, if not local, like all politics is local. All compensation is at least state, and in 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 Arizona and Colorado, it's it is local. Um, funding may come from the state. So, when I think of a national challenge, I I think more in terms of what national advocates may be raising to try to change each state at a time, or maybe go to the federal level and change that, although that's a rare thing that happens. So I think, again, I may have mentioned this earlier, I think the fundamental rules, the foundation of uh, compensation programs from 50, 40 years ago, in the case of Arizona, um, are under challenge. And these may be in need of review. There may be changes that should be made. And I want to be clear that this association of compensation programs doesn't have a stance on some of these things. And these things are, should they be funded through offender fees and fines? Or is that a wrong way to do this now in in the the 21st century? Should victims be, and there are only a few eligibility rules, but those are the ones that are being questioned now. Should victims be required to report and cooperate with uh, law enforcement in order to qualify for this state-funded program. It's not a welfare program that ever, ever medic. It's not Medicaid. It's you know the way it's set up. Um, it's it's a limited benefit for a certain number of people that are eligible for it under the rules. Now most people do qualify under the rules, but reporting and cooperation of law enforcement. What about what we call contributory misconduct? There's different phrases, but every state compensation program is supposed to evaluate whether the person who is victimized was doing something criminal or substantially wrong. You know, the, the most stark case, of course, is drug dealers who might be, sh- or gang members who are on a regular basis engaging in violent acts against each other over turf, whatever. You know, is that the individual that whose medical bills or even funeral bills uh, should be paid for by public funds. There are arguments to be made for, for and against that. And these are 
legislative issues that the federal government has not taken up. There's nothing in VOCA or you know, even being considered by Congress to, to, to do that type of, uh, make that type of decision. Um, so those, th that's a national challenge, I guess, if you think about it as a challenge that 50 states at some point or other are either facing now or probably gonna face as advocates raise these issues. So I'd say though, and, and you know, we, are, we obviously talked about funding and technology to ensure that the process moves smoothly. So you know, that, those are the things I would identify as sort of national challenges. But again, it's not really the nation facing this or Congress, it's Arizona when advocates want changes to state law because that's where compensation is. Kind of touching on changes, if you had the power to make any changes to compensation programs, do you have a top three or a three that you would focus on? Well, I would say that the things we've talked about, you know, that every compensation program would be well-funded one way or another. I mean, if states decide that they need to put appropriations money into this because it's a societal value, to provide the safety net, the social insurance program on a limited basis for the, this group of people. Um, well-funded, well-staffed, well-staffed, because if you don't have the people to process claims, then just like an insurance company, an insurance company's gotta have the people there to answer the phones and to make the claims go through and get the hospitals paid and the victims paid or whatever. Um, so well-funded, well-staffed, and I would say, establish good relations with all those allied professions, all the people that are working hard to help victims. You know, I'd say that was something I would wish that all compensation programs had the energy and the resources and the time to do. I think you guys do a great job with that. You have this connection between both assistance and compensation. Um, so you know, those these three things, and, and, and it does come down to money but it also comes down to attitude and the, the, the desire to make this system, which is integrated, work well, optimally for all. I'm gonna jump into kind of a next question. You've talked about how states um, and compensation programs, how we are operating under state laws and rules um, under a, you know, a set of federal guidelines. Uh, what do you see as the most complicated rule or concept to apply in compensation programs? I, I would have to, I guess, jump to this contributory misconduct provision that, again, all state laws have. When these programs were set up 50, 40 years ago, um, there was the, the legislators seem to have clearly stated their intention, which is, again, if you're a criminal and that's why you got shot, killed, injured, whatever, um, then you're not gonna qualify for these public funds. We don't want, say, the Attorney General of Texas sending money to a criminal who's incarcerated because he had medical bills incurred before he was put in prison. Um, that was the, you know, I, I think, and I'm not putting my own values or judgment or, or approval or disapproval on that, but that seems to be clearly what legislatures wanted to do. Um, so I think that's probably, the, the difficulty is Compensation programs don't investigate these crimes on themselves. They don't have investigative police forces. They rely entirely on the police. And then, well, I should say mostly on police, but they also have the victim statement. They can talk to the victim. 
There are others that may provide information. You may get information from a doctor or a counselor that is uh, pertinent. I think as the society, and I can't, you know, we don't have the time to go into these in any great depth, but as we know, there's much questioning now among certain communities in certain states uh, about the relationship of police with communities. And so there's, things are not as simple, I think, as they might have been 30 years ago or so, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. So trying to figure out if that's what the legislature wants these managers of comp programs to do, to figure out how to separate out really the very small number. We know statistically that it's 3% nationally of all the denials are based on uh, contributory conduct. So it's, it's a difficult thing to do. You've got limited amounts of information, perhaps, from police. The police may not be getting full cooperation. That's why sometimes the comp laws, I mean, maybe that's a reason for the comp laws saying that you have to cooperate so the police can get the full story and figure out who, who's going to get these public funds. So, um, so I think that's, a, that's probably the most difficult thing that the comp programs spend time on is trying to be fair to victims fair to the laws they're required to implement. That's probably the, the toughest thing they do. Other than, you know, maybe even more threshold than that is, okay, we're paying a lot of claims. We don't have money to do it. How are we going to tell victims we can't uh, pay this thing right away? Or the hospitals or the doctors who are really the ones waiting to pay. Yeah, I, I, I would have to say that during my time managing the victim compensation program, Contributory conduct was the one that I struggled with the most. Whenever we had rule changes that, that we were considering, that was the one rule that got the most attention, and we tried to wordsmith and find out the best way to apply that rule. I had a, a, a commission member one time um, when we were um, debating uh, rule changes characterize contributory conduct in probably the best but a very simplistic way. Um, he said that contributory conduct is a rule where you are trying to find the most worthy person to use the benefits of this program on. That it doesn't wholly really excuse someone in, in, in totality it doesn't accept them in totality, but what you're trying to do is trying to find that most worthy person, and that is always going to be complicated to do. And how do you write a rule um, that is not complicated that you're going to apply to a very complicated situation that is not easy to do, but we try and do it anyways. And I would only amend what you said, Tony, in, in this way. I think. I would I would might reverse the way you, you said it in the sense um, it, it's more I think trying to exclude the least worthy oh, person. That, that's, that's that is a I great perspective. I, I think great perspective. I think as you know, as you and Heather know, and the people in the counties that deal with these these claims, it is often not possible to figure out exactly what went on. The, the circumstances are murky. The information available and. Nearly every comp program manager over the years has said, you know, we have, we, we put it into this kind of paradigm in our, in, our, in our work, maybe in our policies or at least in our practice. It has to be something criminal or substantially bad. Do we have evidence? Do we have substantial evidence on that? And then did it cause what happened? 
Right. You know, it could be that, and, and different states have different, but generally speaking, you know, someone could be on drugs. Someone could have a messy life. Someone could have a criminal history. These are not really the factors. If, if something's committing, someone's committing a crime or doing something really substantially bad, and, um, and, and not, the, you know, not something just in poor taste or stupid. It may be really dumb for me to call somebody a, 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 a bad word that I, we all know the words at a bar when we're both drunk. That's really stupid. But I'm not sure that should put me out of the box. Maybe if I took the first swing. Yeah, yeah. I started the fight. But, or a, a, a woman who uh, may have broken the law because she drank and she's not of an age to drink. That just makes herself vulnerable. It doesn't cause this person who assaults her either with his body or with a baseball bat. It's not, that's not contributory conduct. So I think there's many, many situations where um, the search is really to narrow it way, way down to the least worthy, the one that it's really clear. This is not someone that the Arizona state legislature wanted us to use public funds on because they're a criminal that clearly caused their own harm, rather than somebody who's who's got a complicated life and you know, a domestic violence situation where the abuse has been one way for a long time and then something happens. You know, programs don't blame victims for that. They're trying to weed out the worst. I, I would suggest. Well, um, I have uh, one last question to ask you to wrap up our conversation. You know, you've been doing this now for some 34 years. And in that time, you've just, you've just outed me, Tony. I have. I have. But you get but in a in a positive way, because you get credit for for serving for uh, with such great longevity. Um, and you've seen a great deal of evolution in these state programs, these state compensation programs. During your tenure as executive director, of the association. What are you most proud of? I, I'll, I'll name a couple things. I mean, that's a very thought provoking question. You know, anybody who's had a long career and, you know, I've been in this job mostly because nobody else would have me. Why don't I say that? <laughs> but um, no, really, I've enjoyed it. and I didn't want to be doing anything else than this for, for this time period. It was a, happened to be a good fit. But I would say a couple things. We have increased the resources at the federal level. We've nearly doubled the amount of money that the federal government can provide to states, and that's become more important, as we've discussed, as state resources seem to be going down in many states. Um, I would also say that you know, just seeing programs grow and evolve in terms of how they think about crime victimization, um, this is a, a kind of interesting it's sort of a sad fact you know there were a lot of state compensation laws that were written to essentially exclude domestic violence victims this all changed in the in my tenure here it was about 30 years ago that the, what they called the family exclusion there was such a fear in legislators minds that gee if if the offender and the victim are in the same household then maybe they shouldn't there should be no eligibility well we understand domestic violence much better we understand sexual assault much better. Uh, programs are, have gotten into paying for much more in terms of help for these for, for folks like this. I've seen many more folks that come from victim services backgrounds and social work backgrounds 
come into the management of crime victim comp programs. Not that that's an essential, but it's also helped flavor our association discussions. So I, I think, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that we've, we've been able to adapt as, as attitudes have changed, as understanding of victimization has changed, and we're still trying to adapt as resources are in flux and, uh, you know, changes to laws and rules which again, you know, that's up to states to decide and we, we want to help program managers who aren't going to be the decision makers on those. They may have input into it, but we want to just help inform those discussions. So I don't, I don't know if that addresses your question, but absolutely, uh, I've, been very, I've been very proud to work with a group of folks like yourselves who have worked with their colleagues in various stakeholder communities to try to do the best that they can. And we're all humans. We're, you know, we can fail and whatnot, and the program laws themselves may not be set up perfectly, but um, I've, been, I've been proud to work with this group. Dan, having personally worked with you, you offer great advice and perspective and resources every time I need assistance, you and the association. So today, do you have any last parting words or thoughts to leave us with today? No, Heather, I just hope that, that you stick around and Tony sticks around. You know, you offer a lot to me. Everything I have is what I've learned from folks like you. And um, so uh, my parting shot would be, or my parting words would be, um, all the folks that may be listening to this are listening to this because they have a sincere interest in helping crime victims. And to the extent you can help your partners in crime victim compensation accomplish their mission, understand better the realities that you face perhaps, um, and what you understand about how your, the programs can help victims better, you know, I would say, let's keep working together. We're not on opposite sides. We have different functions, different roles, and there may be differences in how to do that. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's everybody working together that makes the system work. Excellent words to leave us with. Dan, thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk with us on the AZ to DC podcast. For more information, about the association and the work that Dan is doing, visit nacvcb.org. Thanks, Dan. I appreciated this opportunity. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Heather. Thank you for listening to the AZ to DC podcast. This has been an Arizona Criminal Justice Commission production. For more information about the Arizona Criminal Justice Commission, visit www.azcjc.gov and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you like this episode and are interested in hearing more, subscribe to AZ to DC on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.